Chapter 7 of The Negro in Literature and Art in the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Negro in Literature and Art in the United States by Benjamin Griffith Raleigh. Chapter 7 Other writers. In addition to those who have been mentioned, there have been scores of writers who would have to be considered if we were dealing with the literature of the Negro in the widest sense of the term. Not too clearly, however, can the limitations of our subject be insisted upon. We are here concerned with distinctly literary or artistic achievement and not with work that belongs in the realm of religion, sociology, or politics. Only briefer mention, accordingly, can be given to these latter fields. Naturally, from the first there have been works dealing with the place of the Negro in American life, outstanding after the numerous sociological studies and other contributions to periodical literature of Du Bois are the books of the late Booker T. Washington. Representative of these are The Future of the American Negro, My Larger Education, and The Man Farthest Down. As early as 1829, however, David Walker of Boston published his passionate Appeal, a protest against slavery that awakened Southern legislatures to action. And in the years just before the Civil War, Henry Highland Garnett wrote sermons and addresses on the status of the race in America, while William Wells Brown wrote Three Years in Europe and various other works, some of which will receive later mention. After the war, Alexander Crummel became an outstanding figure by reason of his sermons and addresses, many of which were preserved. He was followed by an interesting group of scholarly men, represented especially by William S. Scarborough, Kelly Miller, and Archibald H. Grimke. Mr. Scarborough is now president of Wilberforce University. He has contributed numerous articles to representative magazines. His work in more technical fields is represented by his First Lessons in Greek, a treatise on the birds of Aristophanes, and his paper in the arena, parentheses January 1897, on Negro folklore and dialect. Mr. Miller is Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University. He has collected his numerous and cogent papers in two volumes, Race Adjustment and Out of the House of Bondage. The first is the more varied and interesting of the two books, but the latter contains the poetic rhapsody. I see and am satisfied. First published in the Independent, parentheses August 7, 1913. Mr. A. H. Grimke, as well as Mr. Miller, has contributed to the Atlantic, and he has written the lives of Garrison and Summer in the American Reformers series. Negro Culture in West Africa by George W. Ellis is original and scholarly. The Aftermath of Slavery by William A. Sinclair is a volume of more than ordinary interest, and The African Abroad by William H. Ferris, while confused in construction and form, 
contains much thoughtful material. Within recent years, there have been published a great many works, frequently illustrated, on the progress and achievement of the race. Very few of these books are scholarly. Three collaborations, however, are of decided value. One is a little volume entitled The Negro Problem, consisting of seven papers by representative Negroes and published in 1903 by James Pott and Company of New York. Another is From Servitude to Service, published in 1905 by the American Unitarian Association of Boston and made up of the Old South lectures on the history and work of Southern institutions for the education of the Negro. While the third collaboration is The Negro in the South, published in 1907 by George W. Jacobs and Company of Philadelphia and made up of four papers, two by Dr. Washington and two by Dr. Du Bois, which were the William Levi Bull Lectures in the Philadelphia Divinity School for the year 1907. Halfway between works on the Negro problem and those in history are those in the field of biography and autobiography. For decades before the Civil War, the experiences of fugitive slaves were used as part of the anti-slavery argument. In 1845 appeared the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, this being greatly enlarged and extended in 1881 as The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. In similar vein was the Autobiography of a Fugitive Negro by Samuel Ringgold Ward. Then Josiah Henson, the original of Uncle Tom and Sojourner Truth, issued their narratives. Collections of more than ordinary interests were William Wells Brown's The Black Man, parentheses 1863, James M. Trotter's Music and Some Highly Musical People, parentheses 1878, and William J. Simmons' Men of Mark, parentheses 1887. John Mercer Langston's From the Virginia Plantation to the National Capital is interesting and serviceable. Special interest attaches to Matthew Henson's A Negro Explorer at the North Pole, while Maud Cooney Hare's Norris Wright Cooney was a distinct contribution to the history of Southern politics. The most widely known work in this field, however, is Up from Slavery by Booker T. Washington. The unaffected and simple style of this book has made it a model of personal writing and it is by reason of merit that the work has gained unusual currency. The study, of course, becomes more special in the field of history. Interest from the first was shown in church history. This was represented immediately after the war by Bishop Daniel A. Payne's study in the history of the AME Church, and 25 years later, for the Baptist denomination, by E. M. Brawley's the Negro Baptist Pulpit. One of the earliest writers of merit was William C. Now, who in 1851 published his pamphlet, Services of Colored Americans in the Wars of 1776 and 1812. The Rising Sun by William Wells Brown was an account of the antecedents and advancement of the colored race. The work gave considerable attention to Africa, Haiti, and the colonies and was quite scholarly in method. 
Then in 1872, full of personal experience, appeared William Stills, The Underground Railroad. The epoch-making work in history, however, was the two-volume History of the Negro Race in America by George W. Williams, which was issued in 1883. This work was the exploration of a new field and the result of seven years of study. The historian more than once wrote subjectively, but his work was, on the whole, written with unusually good taste. After thirty years, some of his pages have, of course, been superseded, but his work is even yet the great storehouse for students of Negro history. Technical study within recent years is best represented by the Harvard Doctorate thesis of Dr. Du Bois and Dr. Carter G. Woodson. That of Dr. Du Bois has already been mentioned. That of Dr. Woodson was entitled The Disruption of Virginia. Dr. Woodson is the editor of the Journal of Negro History, a quarterly magazine that began to appear in 1916 and that has already published several articles of the first order of merit. He has also written The Education of the Negro Prior to 1861, a work in the most scientific spirit of modern historical study, to which a companion volume for the later period is expected. Largely original, also in the nature of their contribution, have been The Haitian Revolution by T.G. Stewart and The Facts of Reconstruction by John R. Lynch. And while less intensive, interesting throughout is J.W. Cromwell's The Negro in American History. Many of the younger writers are cultivating the short story, especially have two or three as yet unknown to the wider public done excellent work in connection with syndicates of great newspapers. The Goodness of St. Roque and Other Stories by Alice Moore Dunbar, now Mrs. Nelson, is representative of the stronger work in this field. Numerous attempts at the composition of novels have also been made. Even before the Civil War was over appeared William Wells Brown, Clotilde, A Tale of the Southern States. It is in this special department, however, that a sense of literary form has frequently been most lacking. The distinctively literary essay has not unnaturally suffered from the general pressure of the problem. A paper in the Atlantic Monthly, parentheses February 1906, however, The Joy of Being a Negro by Edward E. Wilson, a Chicago lawyer, was of outstanding brilliance. A. O. Stafford, of Washington is a special student of the folklore of Africa. He has contributed several scholarly papers to the Journal of Negro History, and he has also published through the American Book Company an interesting supplementary reader, Animal Fables from the Dark Continent. Alan Locke is interested in both philosophical and literary studies, represented by the American temperament a paper contributed to the North American Review, parentheses August 1911, and a paper on Emile Verhaeren in the Poetry Review, parentheses January 1917. Little has been accomplished in sustained poetic flight. Of shorter lyric verse, however, many booklets have appeared. As this is the field that offers peculiar opportunity for subjective expression, 
more has been attempted in it than in any other department of artistic endeavor. It demands, therefore, special attention, and the study will take us back before the Civil War. The first person to attract much attention after Phyllis Wheatley was George Moses Horton of North Carolina, who was born in 1797 and died about 1880 or 1883. He was ambitious to learn was the possessor of unusual literary talent, and in one way or another received instruction from various persons. He very soon began to write verse, all of which was infused with his desire for freedom, and much of which was suggested by the common evangelical hymns, as were the following lines. Alas, and am I born for this, to wear this slavish chain? deprived of all created bliss, through hardship, toil, and pain? How long have I in bondage lain, and languished to be free? Alas, and must I still complain, deprived of liberty? Come, liberty, thou cheerful sound, roll through my ravished ears. Come, let my grief in joys be drowned, and drive away my fears. Some of Horton's friends became interested in him and desired to help him publish a volume of his poems, so that from the sale of these he might purchase his freedom and go to the new colony of Liberia. The young man became fired with ambition and inspiration. Thrilled by the new hope, he wrote, "'Twas like the salutation of the dove." born on the zephyr through some lonesome grove, when spring returns and winter's chill is past, and vegetation smiles above the blast. Horton's master, however, demanded for him an exorbitant price, and when the hope of liberty appeared in 1829, it had nothing of the sale that was hoped for. Disappointed in his great desire, the poet seemed to have lost ambition, he became a janitor around the State University at Chapel Hill, executed small commissions for verse from the students who treated him kindly, and in later years went to Philadelphia, but his old dreams had faded. Several reprintings of his poems were made, however, and one of these was bound with the 1838 edition of Phyllis Wheatley's poems. In 1854 appeared the first edition of Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects by Frances Ellen Watkins, commonly known as Mrs. Frances E. W. Harper. Mrs. Harper was a woman of exceptionally strong personality and could read her poems to advantage. Her verse was very popular, not less than 10,000 copies of her booklets being sold. It was decidedly lacking in technique, however, and much in the style of Mrs. Herman's. Mrs. Harper was best when most simple, as when in writing of children she said, I almost think the angels who tend life's garden fear drop down the sweet white blossoms that bloom around us here. The secret of her popularity was to be seen in such lines as the following from Bury me in a free land. Make me a grave where you will, In a lowly plain or a lofty hill. Make it among earth's humblest graves, 
but not in a land where men are slaves. Of the Emancipation Proclamation, she wrote, It shall flash through coming ages, it shall light the distant years, and eyes now dim with sorrow shall be brighter through their tears. While Mrs. Harper was still prominently before the public appeared, Albury A. Whitman, a Methodist minister whose Not a Man and Yet a Man appeared in 1877. The work of this writer is the most baffling with which this book has to deal. It is diffuse, exhibits many lapses in taste, is uneven metrically as if done in haste, and shows imitation on every hand. It imitates Whittier, Longfellow, Tennyson, Scott, Byron, and more. The Old Sack Village and Nanawawa's suitors are very evidently Hiawatha over again, and Custer's Last Ride is simply another version of The Charge of the Light Brigade. The Rape of Florida exhibits the same general characteristics as the earlier poems, and yet whenever one has about decided that Whitman is not worthy of consideration, he insists on a revision of judgment. The fact is that he shows a decided faculty for brisk narration. This may be seen in the House of the Aylors. He has, moreover, a romantic lavishness of description that, in spite of all technical faults, still has some degree of merit. The following quotations, taken respectively from The Mowers and The Flight of Leona, will exemplify both his extravagance and his possibilities in description. The tall forest swim in a crimson sea, out of whose bright depths rising silently, great golden spires shoot into the skies among the isles of cloudland high that rise. Float, scatter, burst, drift off, and slowly fade deep in the twilight, shade succeeding shade. And now she turns upon a mossy seat, where sings a fern-bound stream beneath her feet, and breathes the orange in the swooning air, where in her queenly pride the rose blooms fair, and sweet geranium waves her scented hair, there gazing in the bright face of the stream, her thoughts swim onward in a gentle dream. In a dream of glory occurs the lines, The fairest blooms are born of humble weeds that faint and perish in the pathless wood, and out of bitter life grow noble deeds to pass unnoticed in the multitude. Whitman's shortcomings become readily apparent when he attempts sustained work. The Rape of Florida is the longest poem yet written by a Negro in America, and also the only attempt by a member of the race to use the elaborate Spenserian stanza throughout a long piece of work. The story is concerned with the capture of the Seminoles in Florida through perfidy and the taking of them away to their new homes in the West. It centers around three characters, Palmeco, an old chief, Ewald, his daughter, and Atlassa, a young Seminole who is Ewald's lover. 
The poem is decidedly diffuse. There is too much subjective description, too little strong characterization. Palmeco, instead of being a stout warrior, is a chief of peace and kindly deeds. Stanza of merit, however, occasionally strike the eye. The boat song forces recognition as genuine poetry. Come now, my love, the moon is on the lake. Upon the waters is my light canoe. Come with me, love, and gladsome oars shall make a music on the parting waves for you. Come o'er the waters, deep and dark and blue. Come where the lilies in the marge have sprung. Come with me, love, for oh, my love is true. This is the song that on the lake was sung. The boatman sang it over when his heart was young. In 1890, Whitman brought out an edition of Not a Man and Yet a Man and The Rape of Florida, adding to these a collection of miscellaneous poems, Drifted Leaves, and in 1901 he published An Idol of the South, an epic poem in two parts. It is to be regretted that he did not have the training that comes from the best university education. He had the taste and the talent to benefit from such culture in the greatest degree. All who went before him were, of course, superseded in 1896 by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and Dunbar started a tradition. Throughout the country there sprang up imitators, and some of the imitations were more than fear. All of this, however, was a passing phenomenon. Those who are writing at the present day almost invariably eschew dialect and insist upon classic forms and measures. Prominent among these is James Weldon Johnson. Mr. Johnson has seen a varied career as teacher, writer, counsel for the United States in foreign countries, especially Nicaragua, and national organizer for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He has written numerous songs, which have been set to music by his brother, Rosamond Johnson, or Harry T. Burley. He made for the Metropolitan Opera the English translation of the Spanish opera, Goyescas, by Granados and Paraquet, and in 1916, while associated with The Age of New York, in a contest opened by the Public Ledger of Philadelphia, to editorial writers all over the country, he won a third prize of $200 for a campaign editorial. The remarkable book, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, Half Fact, Half Fiction, was published anonymously, but is generally credited to Mr. Johnson. Very recently, parentheses December 1917, has appeared this writer's collection, Fifty Years and Other Poems. In pure lyric flow, he is best represented by two poems of the century. One was a sonnet entitled Mother Night, parentheses February 1910. Eternities before the first-born day, or ere the first sun fledged his wings of flame, calm night, the everlasting and the same, a brooding mother over chaos lay and whirling suns shall blaze and then decay.
shall run their fiery courses and then claim the haven of the darkness whence they came back to nirvanic peace shall grope their way so when my feeble sun of life burns out and sounded is the hour for my long sleep i shall full weary of the feverish light welcome the darkness without fear or doubt and heavy-lidded i shall softly creep into the quiet bosom of the night when we think of the large number of those who have longed for success in artistic expression and especially for the first singer of the old melodies we could close this review with nothing better than mr johnson's tribute o black and unknown bards parentheses century november nineteen o eight o black and unknown bards of long ago how came your lips to touch the sacred fire how in your darkness did you come to know the power and beauty of the minstrel's lyre who first from midst his bonds lifted his eyes who first from out the still watch lone and long feeling the ancient faith of prophets rise within his dark-kept soul burst into song there is a wide wide wonder in it all that from degraded rest and servile toil the fiery spirit of the seer should call these simple children of the sun and soil o black singers gone forgot unfamed you you alone of all the long long line of those who have sung untaught unknown unnamed have stretched out upward seeking the divine you sang not deeds of heroes or of kings no chant of bloody war nor exulting paean of arms won triumphs but your humble strings you touched in chords with music empyrean you sang far better than you knew the songs that for your listeners hungry hearts sufficed still live but more than this to you belongs you sang a race from wood and stone to christ End of chapter 7